When it comes to stories about infinite libraries, the Library of Alexandria and its disappearance often take center stage. These narratives would have us believe that an ancient, almost infinite library is intact, but hidden beneath the sands, waiting for an intrepid librarian slash explorer to find it. If you've ever watched the TV shows The Librarians or Warehouse 13, you'll recognize the plot device. In a weird paradox, the other most common belief is that the library was totally destroyed in one fell swoop after Caesar's troops swept through Alexandria, putting everything to the torch. There's also the suggestion that Christians were responsible, which caused an intellectual setback that launched us into the Dark Ages. The truth, though, is much less exciting. At its peak, the Library of Alexandria was one of the greatest storehouses of knowledge in the known world. Realistic estimates for what the library contained are difficult to piece together, but they range from 40,000 all the way up to 700,000 texts. During a dynastic conflict in 145 BC, the head librarian, Aristarchus of Samothrace, backed the wrong horse and found himself exiled from the library and from Egypt. The winner of the dynastic contest, Ptolemy VIII Fiscon, expelled all foreign scholars from Egypt. Naturally, this would have been a blow to the library, given that scholars came from all over the world to study there. After this, the glory of the library began to collapse, and it lost much of its prestige. As for Caesar... How dare you and the rest of your barbarians set fire to my library! Caesar's troops did cause some damage to the library, but it wasn't intentional. His men had set fire to the docks and the grain stores. The fire spread, and the library became collateral damage. And those rowdy, iconoclastic Christians aren't completely to blame either. Part of the collection was lost, but not everything. In 391 or thereabouts, the last bit of the library was torn down by a mob of Roman soldiers and Christians, and it had nothing to do with the contents, which... By that point, we're probably non-existent. In the end, the loss of this magnificent institution was due to the march of time, but we can't be blamed for lamenting the loss of a place like this. It's very appealing to imagine strolling through the library's halls and reading the greatest works that the ancient world possessed. And while these works may have been lost to time, we still have the stories about the library, right? In fictional narratives, places like the Library of Alexandria are still out there, just waiting to be found. My name is Elizabeth Hedrick. I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Texas Women's University, and you're listening to Anxiety in the Archives, my podcast dissertation. here again? Kids really dig the library, don't you? We're literary. To read makes our speaking English good. In the last episode, we started to dive into A.J. Hackwith's Hell's Library series and Genevieve Cogman's Invisible Library series as examples of libraries as infinite spaces in speculative fiction. We also talked about how these kinds of fictional libraries can often reflect our own beliefs about real-world libraries and the seemingly infinite space that they might contain. In this episode, we're going to go even deeper into these books and take a look at them through narrative and rhetorical lenses. 
We're going to talk about what it is that makes these books such a good tool for examining the endless possibilities within libraries, and we're going to do it with all of the best scholarly rigor that we can employ. So, why am I rambling about the Library of Alexandria? Well, as I said, the Library of Alexandria is often what we picture when we think about mysterious libraries and their seemingly infinite space. We know that the Library of Alexandria existed, we know that it had a massive collection, and we know that it was the place to be. And then it was gone. Or at least the physical structure of the library was gone. But it seems that its legacy just wouldn't die. But why though? I mean, why out of all of the remarkable things throughout time and space did the Library of Alexandria become such an enduring myth? I don't have all of the answers to this, of course, but I think I can help to explain it at least a little. When discussing the cultural significance of libraries and archives that existed in colonial fictions from the late 19th to early 20th century, English professor Thomas Richards explains that the archive was not a building, not even a collection of texts, but the collectively imagined junction of all that was known or knowable, a fantastic representation of an epistemological master pattern a virtual focal point for the heterogeneous local knowledge of metropolis and empire. While Richards is speaking specifically about imperial archives and libraries, he has also very much described the Library of Alexandria at its peak. By all accounts, it was the junction of everything that was to be known in the ancient world. Everyone who was anyone was going to be there. They let anybody in, but it's still the same. It feels like something so massive and important shouldn't have disappeared so completely, right? But time marches on, knowledge is lost, and history becomes a game of telephone. And if we're going to try to blame Romans and Christians for this loss, we also have to understand that war and colonization played a very big part as well. It's all tied together, and while I would love to have a conversation with you about that aspect, I simply do not have the space to cover the last 2,000 years of worldwide atrocities. That is an entirely different podcast. Eventually, after thousands of years of myths and legends, the library becomes a sexy and mysterious narrative device for all kinds of speculative fiction narratives about the endless wonder and infinite space within libraries. But are all of these narratives just about libraries? Or is there a deeper meaning behind them? Sometimes people just want a fun and exciting story that allows them to escape from the real world for a bit. There is nothing wrong with that, but I do think it's important to think about it. Thinking about the potential for deeper meanings in the narratives we consume doesn't have to ruin the story for us. If anything, it can add even more levels to the narrative. And honestly, when the deeper meanings are there, we do know it, even if we don't always realize it on a conscious level. This is where certain narrative devices can become so important. Essentially, libraries provide a way for authors and readers to consider social and cultural implications outside of the narrative itself. Even if it's not intentional on the part of the author, even if we don't know all the ways that the narrative is affecting us, it can still change our point of view and the stories that we create about the world around us. Elise Kratia helps to explain this by saying that 
The communicative devices of speculative fiction, and especially fantasy, enable the consideration of the world as a product of storytelling in the form of a thought experiment. This tendency to create thought experiments makes fantasy an especially potent tool for both examining and criticizing the contemporary popular understanding of stories and how they construct our shared reality. Sometimes a library is just a library, but sometimes a library is so much more than that. The shared reality that we have constructed around libraries, including the Library of Alexandria, can provide a framework in which we examine real-world actions and events. In fiction, we can do that in a way that is low stakes and low pressure. I think it's a story that writes itself. I need to tuck some, I, not, you know what I mean. I need to put in a chunk about how the story worlds are, we see how they work through the characters show us how the story worlds work. They show us the rules, they show us the limits, and they show us when things go too far. Even Right, yeah, them. so like, the, it does make sense because it's the idea if you're like, if you say, you know, they may not be our physics, they may not be, be our world, but they make sense because they're delivered to us from the characters who live in that world, you know? Um, and then the idea, it makes as much sense to them as our world makes to us. Okay. It fits there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Some books are closer to the real world than others, of course. The worlds within Hackwith's Hell's Library series and Cogman's Invisible Library series are far enough from the real world that we might call them unnatural. Logically, we know that they can't possibly exist, but they bear a resemblance to the real world structures that we all know and love, so we're able to accept that they maybe, might, very possibly, could be real. This is often the case with speculative fiction. Just think about your favorite science fiction or fantasy novel, and you'll see what I mean. But if we're going to venture into the realm of unnatural narrative, we're going to need to take the big guns with us, and one of those big guns is Jan Alber. You know, I almost got to meet Jan Alber once at a narrative conference, but because I'm basically a character from a Jane Austen novel, I need to be introduced to people, and no one introduced me to Jan, so I never got to meet him, and here we are. So, what does Jan Alber have to tell us about unnatural narratives? Well, many narratives defy, flaunt, mock, play, and experiment with some core assumptions about narrative. More specifically, they may radically deconstruct the anthropomorphic narrator, the traditional human character, and the minds associated with them, or they may move beyond real-world notions of time and space, thus taking us to the most remote territories of conceptual possibilities. Basically, Unnatural narratives happen in a space that cannot possibly be real. This unnaturalness could be on the part of the narrator, or it could be the space within which they exist, or it could be both. Employing unnatural aspects within the narrative allows the author more freedom of thought and movement. Darling, you have no idea what's possible. 
the worlds within the narratives written by Hackwith and Cogman exist in ways that are uniquely suited to the stories that the authors are trying to tell us. These spaces can be manipulated in ways that simply aren't possible for libraries and mimetic fiction, which aims to mimic reality. As such, these narratives appeal to that sense of wonder that we have when we imagine the endless spaces that might be hiding in our own real-world libraries. Within these unnatural narratives, what sustains the reader and increases their ability to accept these worlds is the anchoring of the unnatural to the natural. Jan Alber tells us that a reader's own cognitive architecture can limit them when it comes to making sense of these kinds of narratives. Thus, authors must create recognizable story elements that we can map into our existing cognitive framework in order for us to understand and accept these narratives. And how is it that our human brains are so capable of just accepting these wild stories about libraries? Well, that's due to a little thing that I like to call the principle of minimal departure. Okay, so Marie-Laure Ryan is the brilliant mind who actually coined that term, but whatever. Anyway, according to Ryan, we can accept just about any strange circumstance in a piece of fiction as long as there is a touchstone that we can tie to a real-world image that we hold in our minds. Ryan uses the example of a winged horse. A reader, upon encountering a winged horse in fiction, will automatically picture a real-world horse with some wings slapped on top and then go on with the rest of the story. The reader knows what the horse looks like, they know what wings look like, so it's not a far leap to put the two together. And we all know what the inside of a library looks like, right? I'm going to assume that if you're listening to this, you have been in a library at least once in your life. Obviously, it wasn't an infinite library, but sometimes when you're in the stacks, it does seem as if the library could just go on and on. So, you read a piece of fiction where the library is literally infinite, you think back to your own experiences in libraries, and your brain makes the leap. And that, right there, is your point of minimal departure. It. This reliance on standard library architecture as our point of minimal departure plays out in very different ways in the books that we've been discussing. The library architecture in Hackwith's Hell's Library series consists of multiple wings spread out across realms that have been drawn from a host of mythological afterlives, but they also operate under a set of physics that are specific to this story world. And these realms can change, growing larger or smaller, depending on how well they're still known to the mortal world. The realms of the afterlife are long-lived, but not static. Realms function off belief, and will change as beliefs change. Realms can die if starved of souls, but more often they morph into something closer to legend than to religion. Eternity bends to the whims of mortal imagination. I wonder what we would do if we knew we held such a power when we were alive. So, we have a library system with wings in a number of underworlds and afterlives that are dependent on mortal belief. But these wings are also capable of altering their size and appearance based on the needs of their head librarian, and they are capable of changing to a new head librarian if they become displeased. We also have books that are capable of waking up and bringing their characters to life. Librarians who are actually dead, and dead gods who might actually be alive at least a little bit. 
At the same time, even as all of these weird things are happening, we are still aware that the library mostly looks like a library. It may contain multiple afterlife realms, but the structures still contain walls and shelves and stories. In order to get a really tight grip on the narrative, we rely on Hackwood's characters to help us understand this unnatural story world. The core group of the series, the characters who work together to save the library, are a dead head librarian named Claire, her muse assistant Brevity, a book character come to life named Hero, and an angel named Rami. I know, right? That's a whole lot to unpack. Towards the end of the first book, The Library of the Unwritten, the Unwritten Wing comes under attack by Andrus, a demon that Claire had once considered a friend and mentor. As the front of the wing begins to burn, taking countless stories with it, Claire escapes to the back and calls upon the library to help. And the library responds. She felt the figures at her back. Dozens of them. No, not dozens. Hundreds. And she knew the books were awake. Books woken up after a long, very long sleep. Heroes and villains and damsels and knights, monsters and rogues and saints and madmen, books and stories and characters and conflicts from ages long past, furies and passions honed over an eon to a killing edge. Aliens and monsters and queens and mercenaries and children, they crowded the hall behind her and clung to shelves. Those with wings and tails crowded overhead, dozens, hundreds more. The weight of the wakened library balanced, heavy and infinite in the air. All of the stories that live within the unwritten wing wake up at Claire's plea to defend the library. When Claire asks for and then accepts the library's help, she knows that it will likely have world-breaking consequences. The library is ultimately saved, but many stories are lost, and the library holds Claire responsible. The fact that the library exists as a self-aware being matters to the larger story and to the idea that libraries hold infinite space inside of them. Because if libraries are infinite, this could mean that there is a function somewhere within that library that understands when it's time to expand in order to hold new works. And if the library is capable of that level of sentience, then isn't it possible that that library could also fight to defend itself and grieve those stories that are lost in the fight? I would have thought a librarian above all would comprehend that. So how does the principle of minimal departure play out in Cogman's work? Well, as an example... Towards the end of the penultimate book in Cogman's series, The Dark Archive, the reader finally begins to edge closer to the secrets that lie in the literal depths of the library, and we are told that... Subterranean passages wound through the stacks. It was possible to lose oneself amongst books in multiple directions, up and down and in between, but the walkways finally led to an open space. This seemed incongruous when compared with its cramped surroundings. It was somehow larger than it should have been, with no discernible ceiling. The stonework that supported its sides was ancient, yet well-preserved. The river that ran through its center, before plunging into the hidden depths below, supplied a constant background murmur of sound. We are given a description of a place that could never exist in the real world, 
but we are also given reference points that help our brains to accept the structure. We are told that the area is stuffed with books and that there should be nowhere to go, but there is a clear open space. And despite the apparent lack of a ceiling, there is stonework supporting, well, something. And then we toss a subterranean river into the whole thing just to really mess with our sensibilities. We are effectively lost and alone in a place that feels familiar, even if the structure itself is not. You out there? You listening? So even though we know that none of this could ever be real, we are given the touch points that are necessary to create the image in our minds. We can picture library stacks and ancient stone walls. I mean, hell, even subterranean rivers are not unheard of. The author has given us details that might, on their own, be inconsequential. But when they're placed together and used to describe a specific space, they help to transport the reader. We are able to slip into this impossible space and see the world through the eyes of Cogman's protagonist, junior librarian Irene Winter. Despite being an unnatural place, the story world of the Invisible Library does have rules and physics. They make just as much sense to the characters in the story as the rules and physics of our world make sense to us. Consider the series' main antagonist, Alvaric, who is believed to be nothing more than an urban legend by the librarians of the Invisible Library. In truth, he was a librarian for the Invisible Library until he descended into madness. This drove him to explore the farthest ends of chaos and dark magic. His ultimate goal was to destroy the library completely. The choices that he made in pursuit of this goal had serious consequences and led him to become something so unnatural that he had to steal the skins of other humans in order to have any kind of physical presence. When Irene sees the truth of Alberich and what he has become, she is horrified. Behind the stolen skin, Alberic was a living hole into some place or universe that should not exist on any human plane. In that brief moment, she had seen living muscle, tendon, and blood, but also colors masses that left burning spaces on her retinas. She'd seen things moving that bent the light around them and shifting structures that made no sense. All her reality suddenly seemed as fragile as a curtain someone was about to rip through at any moment. We understand Irene's world because we have been given clear rules for what is and is not impossible when something occurs that should be impossible in this story world, like the existence of Alberic, Irene is just as confused as we are, because Alberic no longer exists in a way that Irene's mind can properly comprehend. The sensory overload didn't cause any permanent damage, but I wouldn't want to expose his brain to that kind of stimulus again. Hackwith's and Cogman's characters provide the bridge that we need to move between natural and unnatural. We see these libraries through their eyes, and so we are better able to understand how they function. And we can also better understand our own sense of wonder we experience when we visit the library. So, I'm gonna ask you one question. Don't ever think it. What comes to mind when I say the word library? Library? 
Um, let's see here. I think I was about got a situated right with what house you live in, you know? Yeah. What color my bed spread was. So I would be about nine, I think. And my mom would take me to the public library in Westchester, Ohio every week. And I'd probably get 25 books, as many as they'd let me, and uh, sit in her room, not my room, on this big white ottoman and just literally devour everything. And so when I think about library, I think about that, about the fact that I was a kid and all of that was free. <laughs> and my mom just drove me to the library and I picked them up and took them home with me. Um, but that's different than now. When I think about libraries, because uh, uh, I've been in a library in a long time, not just COVID style, you know, been, you know, the Denton Public Library I use for audiobooks and digital books and so on and so forth, you know. Um, I don't know. Yeah, so when you think library, I automatically think of something very comfortable that doesn't exist anymore. Ouch. That's painful. Thanks for making me think about that, Beth. <laughs> and I think we're done. <laughs> Still, as a storyteller, I'm fascinated how a person's sense of consciousness can be so transformed by nothing more magical than listening to words. Words have the power to change, well, everything. I think we're all aware at this point that popular culture is saturated with a dizzying array of ideologies. My job is to help break down the role narrative fiction plays in reinforcing or challenging some of those ideologies. According to Deanna Selnow, the narrative perspective is valuable for studying popular culture texts because it proposes a systematic means by which to analyze how they function as stories and what underlying ideological messages are being conveyed in them. The perspective that this kind of narrative brings can provoke thought experiments in the reader about what is possible in the real world. We might not have libraries in hell or men who can turn themselves into formless voids in space, but that doesn't mean that weird and unnatural things can't happen. And when weird and unnatural things happen, we need to know how to process them. It helps if we can place ourselves in the character's shoes by understanding that their motivations are often not that different from ours. Jan Alber suggests that all narrative representations, regardless of whether they involve logical impossibilities or not, somehow reflect human motivation. And we have some pretty specific motivations for the things that we do, whether we're talking about the real world or fantasy library land. It could be about love, money, power, war or peace, or even just making sure that we have food in our bellies and a safe place to sleep. But we all have motivations for our actions. Seeing characters in unnatural narratives who are driven by the same motivations helps us to identify with such characters, which gives these narratives more rhetorical power. In doing so, we are driven to examine the narrative we have created around our own identities and our own sense of self. It's a narrative Ouroboros of emotions and motivations, and we can't help but be drawn in. 
even when the landscape is outside of our experiences. As long as we have those all-important touch points to keep us connected, we can see the world that is being created for us, and we can see our own world layered on top. It all comes together inside our heads and creates brand new spaces for thoughts and ideas. Honestly, it's pretty damn cool. And this will rip open your consciousness. Anxiety in the Archives is written, produced, and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick. You can find episodes, transcripts, and references in the show notes or by visiting anxietyinthearchives.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with me about what you've heard, please feel free to find me on Twitter at archiveanxiety. The theme song for Anxiety in the Archives is Mind Control by Half Cocked. This song and all other episode music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The cover art for Anxiety in the Archives was created by Matt Davis. This project couldn't have been born without the support of my committee, Gretchen Busell, Ashley Bender, and Dundee Lackey, who willingly ventured into unknown ground with me. I'd like to thank everyone that allowed me to interview them for this episode, including G-Love, and everyone who lent their voices to this episode and brought life to the books that I love, including Brie, Selena, Kristen, and Crystal. I'd also like to thank Harvest House for always providing a safe port in the middle of my academic storm. And finally, thank you for listening. Please join me next time for episode six, The Library as Infinite Space, part three.